When you're hearing such difficult things that a lot of kids and teens right now are going through that are what maybe many would think is horrific, we think, oh gosh, well, I don't have any, I'm not a therapist or I don't have the training. I don't know what to say. I don't know how to fix it. And it's like, we've missed the point. It's literally just sit there, be a bump on a log. It's the literally the most easy thing to do and the most effective. Welcome, everybody, to Resilience Conversations. We are back again. It's me and Carmen here, along with our friend Amanda Beathy, who was with us just last week. And today, we're also welcoming Jamie Whitehouse. Welcome, Jamie. Hello. So Jamie is a licensed clinical marriage and family therapist and has been serving the McPherson community and surrounding areas for the past 10 years. And she provides counseling for individuals and couples and families. She owns her own private practice, Advocate Counseling and Therapeutic Services of Kansas. So we're super excited for Jamie to join us today as we talk about the next couple of chapters of what happened to you. Before we get started, we're going to check in, mad, sad, glad, or afraid, and what is that mostly about for you? So this is our check-in that we do all of the time, Jamie. Mm -hmm. Amanda, you got to experience it last week. I think right now... I think I'm showing up a little mad, <laughs> but as a group, we've already been kind of discussing that. I just, you know, I, I've had a day and I think I'll just leave it at that. So we got a little bit of mad. I'm also, I'm also glad. I'm really, I'm loving this podcast series that we're doing. I like that we're talking about books in just really meaningful ways for ourselves. And I'm glad to see Jamie again. We had a salad lunch together about a year ago and uh, mm. talked about the Enneagram and that was fun. So yes. happy to see her face again. Who would like to check in next? Well, I'll check in next. This is Carmen, and I'm just, I'm glad that we're all here together today. I'm really glad that Amanda and Jamie are here with us. Jamie and I go to church together, and we talk, like we have side conversations about trauma and Mm -hmm. such, and so it's fun that we get to, like, work on something together today. Yes. I am... Probably glad. Not probably. I am actually very, very glad. I am about eight weeks pregnant today. So I am very excited and it is my first. So very excited, though afraid because it's still super early and I am, I'll be 39 having this, so a little older. So there's just a little bit of, you know, extra that goes along with that. So, but that's where my, uh, world right now is kind of wow congratulations Pod, i feel like that's a podcast exclusive yes. <laughs> <laughs> <A> baby announcement <laughs> uh this is amanda and i'm currently glad to be here and also glad i picked up my only yesterday from grandparents for a week so she got to have lots of fun experiences which always happens at grandparents house so mm-hmm. oh thanks for that carmen you're gonna you're gonna introduce us into the the podcast but i want to say beforehand that i had a friend who was here in the office parking lot the other day. And Amanda, you were in the parking lot where you were, I know you were here for a workshop. So I get this text midway through the day of um, your copy of what happened to you sitting on the dashboard of your car. And she said, of course, this would be in the ESDAC parking lot. (laughs) (laughs) And so I just giggled because I'm, well, of course it is. Where else would that book be? Right. So Carmen, why don't you tell us what we're going to do today? Yeah. So we're going to touch base with chapters six, seven, and eight today. And as we were walking over into the podcast studio, I just said, of all of the chapters, I just feel like 
teachers, educators need to can hone in on chapters six, seven, and eight, I think would be amazing. So I feel like this could be, like we could talk about these three chapters for a very long time. And so I just encourage you, those that are listening, is is to chime in. We, we'd love to hear your thoughts on these chapters as well at re, hashtag Resilience Conversations. Absolutely. So let's just dig in. Carmen, do you want to start us off with chapter six, this, this quote here maybe? And we yeah. can go and discuss from there. Yeah. So in chapter six, uh, Oprah says, oftentimes we punish the child who is daydreaming. And Dr. Perry responds to that with, we do. But in developmentally informed, trauma-aware schools, there is an understanding that downtime plays a crucial role for memory consolidation. Disassociative reflection is encouraged. Wow. So let's talk about this quote here and just how how does this information play a role in our relationships with our children or our students, just kind of across the board, our partners? How does this influence our relationships? What are your thoughts? I really like stopped in my tracks when I read mm-hmm. Oprah's, you know, oftentimes we punish the child who is daydreaming. And I was like, oh, my gosh, that is 100 percent true, 100 percent true. So it really made me think back to those kiddos in my classroom and what how what could I what should I have done or what could I have done differently and and I also like in my role now as a facilitator I'm also thinking of it in that terms too when I'm I'm a like a dreamer person myself and so I I don't know it I feel all the feels about this quote (laughs) about this idea it reminds me, and I, I don't think this is really quite the intent of it, but I'm wondering, I remember, I don't know, early in my career, learning the rule 10 and 2, chunk and chew, right? Like, you've well, educators have probably heard this. I don't know. Jamie's making a face at me like, that sounds like an elementary <laughs> educator I was going to say, I've only taught college, so <laughs> I, I did not learn that one. <laughs> the idea of 10 and 2, chunk and chew is that when you're, when you are teaching, that you should, you should be doing this in, in times where you deliver information and then you provide processing time and that you should keep that 10 and 2 ratio, right? So 5 to 1, 10 to 2, 20 to 4, whatever it is that you're providing time for reflection, for disassociation of thinking, for daydreaming mm-hmm. so that ideas can process. And I'm that was hard for me to always include that in my teaching. And I never thought about it from a lens of being developmentally informed or trauma aware mm-hmm. and what else might be a play other than just the cognitive processing that needs to happen. So what is that 10 and 2 ratio like for a child or an adult that needs to disassociate from their environment, does that increase it? And by how much is the curiosity I would have? And at the high school level, when there's no recess and they do go from Mm. 8 to 3.30, have to be focused all the time, I really noticed it. There's just no time for downtime for them to take a second and breathe. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think too, you know, I am not a parent. I'm close with a lot of families. And, uh, you know, I think of we get into that like scheduling Mm. (laughs) of do, you know, we do this, this is coming, this piano lessons and whatever, 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 whatever. And I wonder, you know, I guess it's a curiosity, like you just said too. What is it, what does it look like (laughs) to have the time to just, 
be able to disassociate. Well, and I think that kind of brings up a couple of things. Like one, what does it mean to sit in silence for the teacher, you know, to create the space and the quiet and how to handle and even teach the children or (laughs) college students how to manage that quiet and to think and go inward, but also for the educator, Silence is okay, but it makes us feel super uncomfortable. But also some of the things as I even do therapy with lots of teachers or parents, obviously, but asking them when a child, let's say, does go into a little bit of that dissociative behavior, that daydreaming and kind of like you can tell they're like not paying attention. It hits us. It registers something. But every educator I've ever talked to, now there's some common themes, but each individual, it's a different statement about themselves, Mm. you know, or about the behavior as if they're being disrespectful. So I'm not, I think this was even my thing as an educator was I'm not being entertaining enough. So I have to be more engaging or a louder or give better examples or something like that. It's like, this is not saying anything about me. This is something that's actually beneficial, helpful. I think even as a therapist, I have to teach individuals how to, in a beneficial, effective way, dissociate and create those good, healthy ways of managing that. I was um, recording something earlier for uh, a professional learning module series that we have, and as I was recording what I have written about the purpose of grounding strategies, this kind of came up because as I was reading it, I was reminded, you know, in action, I just think of grounding strategies as ways to bring myself back to the here and now. But really what I originally wrote about grounding strategies was a way to be able to stop what I stop everything at the moment, stop the feelings I'm feeling from the past, stop the feelings I'm feeling from the moment and integrate myself back. And so I kind of am curious about what that is like for kiddos who are sitting in a classroom. They live, you know, um, dissociation is a defense system for them that serves them well. And at some mm-hmm. point, a lot of times, our, you know, our, our defense systems at some point no longer serve us. Mm-hmm. And so at what point is it something that I need some grounding strategies to help bring a child back to where we are to not rely on a defense system that's not serving them? I don't know. Does that make any sense? Because I feel like I kind of went on a little tangent there, but. I think that's great. I feel like a lot of educators or just even parents are not skilled in how to teach them those self-regulating behaviors or the grounding techniques. And so I think it would be helpful for educating them on, I think of the grounding technique, like the five, four, three, two, one, using mm-hmm. all of their senses, right? Mm-hmm. That's something across the board that it's, that's cross-cultural, that's across age groups, that's anyone can do those things. Now, obviously with blindness or deafness, but there can be some aspect of senses being engaged. And especially if you see some of your students, maybe you don't realize that what we just talked about was very triggering. Mm-hmm. And you're starting to notice we got a lot or I've been talking for 30 minutes and I've lost my class. How about we just take a breather and let's do even what are some five things that you notice around the room? We don't even have to do the whole thing. Right. And then let's. okay, let's go back. Nice. Thanks for that, Jamie. So. Should we move on to chapter seven? And we're doing three big chapters today. Yeah. <laughs> what were we thinking when we planned this? <laughs> chapter seven introduces us to these thematic words, the painful path of wisdom. 
Mm-hmm. And we're taught that resilience is learned over time. It can't be rushed. It can never be assumed. But what mistakes are easy to make in traumatic situations when we don't respect the painful path of wisdom? And Carmen, I think you were going to read a little passage here for us, right? Yeah, this is from Dr. Perry. You know, in the wake of trauma, the hardest thing to understand is that nothing and no one can take away the pain. And yet that's exactly what we desperately want to do because we are social creatures subject to emotional contagion. And when we're around people who are hurting, we hurt too. We don't want to hurt. It is hard to sit in the middle of ruined lives and not feel the misery. It helps us regulate to try to undo or to look away from others' pain. So we make our assumptions about people's resilience. We make our sweeping declarations that allow us to marginalize traumatized children. We take our focus off the tragedy, move on with our lives, telling ourselves that they will be okay. But as we continue to see in our discussion, the impact of trauma doesn't simply fade away. We can help each other heal, but often assumptions about resilience and grit blind us to the healing that leads us down the painful path of wisdom. Wow. I'm kind of at a loss for for thought at the moment as I as I kind of sit with some of that. What's coming up for you guys? I loved that they that in the book. I mean, he used the term emotional shields. That um, and I see it done a lot, or I hear a lot parents kind of doing that. But I also think as educators, we can kind of do that, especially like in a moment where it's not meant. Um, to be because we can even be very, very trauma informed and and do all the right things. But then in the moment, because we don't, you know, because of a potential situation, uh, we just maybe brush it off or uh, let's just not talk about that right now. Right. I think the the sweeping issue of just saying, oh, kids are resilient. Um, I think that emotional shield that not as a blaming side of things, especially I'm going to even just specifically talk about like parents. I know we're more on the educators, but parents side of things. I hear it a lot now, stereotypically, maybe dads, but I know that even my mother received this from her mom that like shut down and shut off the emotions, the suck it up, walk it off, rub some dirt in it kind of thing. And it that comes really out of like you know, his parental history of they were taught that. I even think specifically out of that World War II, World War One, PTSD, they had to dissociate all of those feelings so much. And then generationally, that was then taught into the children, their children, that then taught it into theirs. As they wait, like that's the only way they knew how to cope in those situations. And now it's becoming like, I don't know how to handle mine, I never learned how to, so I'm going to shut it down in you so that I don't also have to handle it in you because I don't know how to handle it, period. And so, but I think that then the kids receive it. Well, and those parents received it from their parents that there's something wrong, weak, bad, wrong, you know, about emotions, unless it's anger, you know, then it's okay (laughs) Uh, because that's strong, (laughs) right? (laughs) You're talking our talk, Jamie. Yes, yes. <laughs> Come see us at School and Family Peace Framework. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. But I just love that word that he put that word, that emotional shield, because that's what I, 
I think especially with that example that he gave with like 9-11, you know, oh, good thing kids are resilient. Oh, but they're... Or that example you know, of the hanger. Well, and that the 9-11 example, I, it, it really made me think. So I have taught the group of students that were born the year of September 11th. I taught them as kindergartners. No, so not the same group. I'm talking in three different states, so multiple groups of mm-hmm. humans. But that class of kids is kindergartners, first graders, second graders, fourth graders, and fifth graders. And there's something in that class. There is evidence of collective trauma in the lives of those students across the board at different than any other group of kids. You know, I was able to teach a few other classes of kids <laughs> in between those. <laughs> There's just collective trauma in there. And it, it, it was really eye-opening to me. I taught, I did teach the same two groups. I taught them as second graders and fourth graders, same 22 kids. And when I realized their birth year, it was this eye-opening realization of, what was happening in our world during that time? And so what were those formative years like for that kiddo? Were their parents worried about? What was the stress of, of everything, right? And so it's easy to say, well, those, those kids, it was before they could even remember anything, but it wasn't before their parents could remember anything. And so it still influenced them. And it'd be really easy just to dismiss that and say, but it, you know, they're 22 now. Well, and they were freshmen in college when COVID yeah. hit. Mm-hmm. Yes. yes. So like bless right. that generation. Poor, I mean, mm-hmm. yes. Right. And as a college professor, I mean, there is a, there was a significant difference with that generation, just even in teaching. That's a stark difference. Yeah. I'm also thinking like what we just read from Dr. Perry too, is the idea of sitting with mm-hmm. and as educators, we like, we like to fix things. <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, learning how to just to, 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 I don't mean to say just sit with, but to sit with people, to sit with our kiddos that are struggling. I think that that has, that could have monumental effects we don't have to we don't have to fix it. We don't have to talk at the student or talk. Rebecca always talks about how we just keep talking faster and louder to kids <laughs> when they're dysregulated if we just sit with. Yes. I think that could be tremendous. We we're on the same train. That's exactly what I thought. We had a secretary, an elementary secretary that was phenomenal at this, right? Here's a water, sit here. And she held space for so many kids and you could see it. I mean, kids were that was the kids a safe space you know, for so many of them and, and still now. And it was, it's amazing to watch because I'm a fixer. I'm a teacher and I, you know, I have to really reflect on being able to just hold space for that. I wonder if this too, I wonder if a flip side of this, because this is kind of talking about the overgeneralization of resilience that we might make, the sweeping of the trauma to the side to focus on the resilience. Mm-hmm. I think sometimes we forget that post-traumatic stress is real and so is post-traumatic growth, that you don't get stuck in when you have experienced trauma, high amounts of stress, something that has really impacted your body to the core, body, mind, spirit, right? That you still can grow from those and that you your, your life can, your life outlook, your experiences, whatever I'm trying to say, transforms and we're not limiting you to who you were when you experienced the trauma. So I wonder if both of these come into play for educators. That sometimes we say, not that big of a deal. They're tough. They're resilient. They'll get through that. Or we look into a story and we say, that is so horrifically terrible. They're, they're never going to overcome this. What do I do to fix it? And so how do we balance that would be 
kind of what I would love to, to wrestle out with people. What do we do in those situations? I think there's a lot of assumptions that we make. Well, that was so horrific. We can't or they can't. And I think if we all would take a step back from the assumptions that we're making in across the board. And, and, and stop believing that just because can't right now doesn't mean can't ever. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Or just because they're okay right now means that they won't be okay forever. You know, I, I just was a friend of mine just recently had a daughter that is now experiencing seizures as a result of her brain trying to process trauma that she experienced way earlier in her life. And so how does that, you know, just because she appeared to be resilient and has a well put together life and all these things doesn't mean it's not going to impact you later. Yeah, I don't know. I'm just... I could talk about this part forever, so maybe we should move on. <laughs> well, I think it's. I loved what he talked about, or it might actually be a little bit later. So I hope I'm not jumping into a chapter. But even the things that you guys talk about with resilience is community. Yes, you know, and so often it's it, there is still this like you alone. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You know, the things that you can do. And I heard an author, I wish I could remember so I could give her credit, but I remember an author talked about, or no, it was a, him that said that he wished more people would not talk about how can you, how can I help someone get over depression or something like that? It's like, no, how can we get people to come around them to help them through this struggle that they're going through. And I think that applies very much, even maybe more so, to uh, things of trauma and bringing them together, bringing people alongside to help move through that resilience. Yeah. Well, I mean, Jamie, that kind of reminds me of the events that we did in Kingman, Kansas. Yes. You know, where we had mental health circle nights where we talked about anxiety and depression and you know what said you know we're not going to repeat what was said in the circle but but the idea there was people there in the circle that were there because they have family members that are struggling and they don't know what to do mm-hmm. and so um or people that were struggling with and you know that whole idea it was just a beautiful picture of people mm-hmm. coming a community coming together. Yeah. That. And if we can do that in small town Kansas, we can do that anywhere. (laughs) Well, and I think it goes back to what you guys just even said earlier. You guys are educators. So like, I want to, I'm a fixer. Right. And also I think we're female. So we're, but I, I know even men get the bad rap of always needing to fix things. Right. And something that I tell a lot of couples that I work with is like men, I promise you the best way you can kind of be there for your wife and help and fix the situation is sit there like a bump on a log when she's venting and just nod your head, be look like you're active <laughs> listening. And at the end say, Wait, Oh my gosh, listening? I'm sorry. That sucks. <laughs> you know, that has to be so hard or wow, that's exciting. You know, just there you go. And, and so I think there's that creating space. I So many people like you through grief or to, through trauma, when you're hearing such difficult things that a lot of kids and teens right now are going through that are what maybe many would think is horrific. And we think, oh gosh, well, I don't have any, I'm not a therapist or I don't have the training. I don't know what to say. I don't know how to fix it. And it's like, you, we've missed the point. It's literally just sit there, be a bump on a log, 
It's the literally the most easy thing to do and the most effective is literally just be there and listen and, you know, like eyeballs, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> put the eyeballs together, you know, give the eyeballs, be present and nod the head or, you know, use some facial expressions. But that's it. That is largely uh, so effective. I've learned I have to sit on my hands because I want to like, you know, touch. Well, what's interesting oh, yeah. to this is that, and we're, we're like we're major bunny trail in here. So, but another thing that I came across that I researched and wrote and in one of the modules was about the way men and women process emotion differently oh, yeah. or situations differently that, that we feel women will biologically feel the mad, sad, or afraid that, and we will internalize that feeling. Men, on the other hand, the way they feel it is on a very external, fix it away from me. So we tend to fix internally. Like, how do I reach out and touch and and come into connection with you? And men want to go do something about it. And so that's always a really interesting look too, when you're in a classroom, when you're in a relationship, Mm. where am I taking this? Carmen, should we move on to the what makes you mad, sad, glad, yeah, and afraid? Let's do it. Yeah. So we're just we like to close up and sum up all this with what makes you mad, sad, glad, or afraid about the chapters that we read and discussed today, and kind of you know from there, what are you taking from the conversation as we walk out of this room together? So who'd like to start? I'll start. Thanks, Carmen. I feel I just really, really appreciated these chapters, and so I that is a huge glad. I appreciated them because there was things in them that I believe and I, it felt like, oh, I don't know. There was some maybe validation. I'm not sure if that's the right word, but some validation there that Dr. Perry and Oprah are talking about that. And also definitely some ahas with, oh gosh, you know, how do I need to, how do I need to adjust some things? And so being able to read a few chapters in a book and come away with some validation, feel, feel seen and heard and valued, but then also have some things to work on is a beautiful thing, I think. Thanks. Yeah, I also feel glad. I think anytime I can learn something and internalize something that I know is going to help my kids, then I'm always happy to have that. So I, as well, the glad, I think without opening up a whole other can of worms, I love chapter six. So if you get a chance, please read this. I think it was very phenomenal where they were talking about cutting and self-harm and this uh, sensitized detachment or dissociative, I'm sorry, response and the desensitized dissociative response. And I think it helped. I hear from so many parents, especially, but educators like, oh my gosh, why? This doesn't make sense. Oh my God. You know, it was just an amazing. So I'm very thankful, especially from a therapeutic side of things, working with a lot of trauma that it was so beautifully explained. So I definitely want to encourage people to read that section, especially, I believe it, it was in chapter six. Thanks. I think for me, I'll be honest, I had a little bit of mad reading these chapters. I think it's, I think if I want to be real honest, that mad is always sad and afraid, but just mad that our systems kind of Mm. downplay the importance of, I don't know, processing memories of supporting each other and holding space with one another to not just 
jump in and fix it or brush it to the side. That makes me sad and afraid still. Mm-hmm. However, there's a there was a line in there and I, I looked, I opened the book to make sure it was in here and then I turned the page and so I probably lost it. But there was a line in here, there were Oprah, they're talking about community and just the importance of we're not doing these things alone. We were never designed to do this alone. We're not supposed to. But Oprah said, we we do belong. We are enough. But it's hard to see that in our current world. Mm-hmm. And it just makes me really hopeful and excited to see what will it look like when more people read this and more people start discussing it. And then it is easy to see that we belong and we're not alone in our current world. Oh, I, I'm just so happy with this book. <laughs> just with, I'm, it's, I think it's, I, I think we've talked about this every week, but just the access, the mm-hmm. access that we have to these conversations right now. And the fact that we can sit here and have a podcast about it and to talk about it through there and then that can reach other people. Yeah. Um, that's just exciting to me. Wow. So we want to know, what are you taking away from this conversation today? Tell us what makes you mad, sad, glad, or afraid. And then tell us your thoughts at hashtag resilience conversation. Next week, we're back. And we're going to dive into chapters nine and 10. We're super excited that Emily Daniels from Here This Now will be with us. So until then, take care and we love you. And there's absolutely nothing you can do about it. 